Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Silent Giants is brought to you by Ali. Alley, powered by Verizon Locations, are developed by Verizon, the world's leading technology company. In collaboration with Alley, a membership-only community workspace for creators, each location is a community curated and powered by the emerging technologies and thought leadership of Verizon. With Alley, Verizon is bridging the gap between startup and corporation by helping the community workspace build next-level ecosystems with entrepreneurs. And now, on to my interview with Jerry Greenberg. I don't think I sacrificed anything. I think when you read my book, you'll understand I was a great husband. I was a great father. I was a great music lover. And I was a great leader. Yeah, yeah, check it out. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Uh, yeah. Everybody tuning in, you invited, you invited. No matter what mood you in, get excited, get excited. Everybody love the music. Let me tell you how they do it. Whether writer or an agent, let me tell you how they made it. You are now talking to a silent giant. Wanna walk in their shoes, silent giants. Wanna study they move, silent giants. Wanna know what they do, silent giants. Silent giants, y'all. <laughs> Pod bless everybody and welcome to another episode of the Silent Giants podcast, a podcast that highlights the superstars behind the scenes of popular culture. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. To keep up with the latest on the show, be sure to follow us on Instagram at at Silent Giants podcast. To keep up with my life, music and more, be sure to follow me as well at at Corey Cambridge. Our special guest this episode is legendary music executive Jerry Greenberg. His career first started in 1967 when he became the assistant to Gerald Wexler, who was at the time vice president of Atlantic Records. Through his hard work and strong ear for music, Jerry became the president of Atlantic Records in 1974, making him the youngest person of any major record company in the recording industry to receive this title. During his helm as president, he signed acts like ABBA, The Blues Brothers, Genesis, T.S. Monk, Sheik, and Nile Rodgers. In 1993, he also served as president of Michael Jackson's label, MJJ Music. In this interview, I chat with Jerry about his upbringing in Connecticut, his early love for music. He shares a story of how he broke into the industry and became president of Atlantic Records. We get into how he signed acts like ABBA and Nile Rodgers and his rise to become president of Michael Jackson's label, MJJ. Jerry's life is so amazing and prolific, it's nearly impossible for me to explain his life's work in this introduction. But there are incredible stories in this interview that you certainly would not want to miss. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to the record executive, music mogul, my friend, the silent giant, Jerry Greenberg. Well, what's going on, Jerry? How you doing, man? Jerry's doing great. How are you doing? Man, look, I, I could not complain. It's a warm day in New York City. It feels like L.A., so, so I got no complaints. So it, it's a pleasure having you on, on, on the podcast. Where are you uh, originally from? I'm originally from New Haven, Connecticut, and grew up on the East Coast till 1986 and then came to California. What was your life like in Connecticut? 
Oh my God. My life in Connecticut was, was really, really cool. I grew up near the water and became very, very in love with boating and being around the water. That's number one. Number two, I started as a musician playing drums when I was 14 years old. And I had my own band and started playing around to all the colleges and recorded my first record, believe it or not, with a group from New Haven, Connecticut. The Five Satins that had the big hit in the still of the night. That was the beginning of Jerry's career. How'd you first get into, into music, into playing the drums? I first got into music sitting behind the drum set at a wedding during the band's taking a break. And I started tapping on the drum and the drummer went over to my mother and said, you should give your son drum lessons because he's got natural rhythm. So she told me what he said. I said, great. And she bought me my first snare drum and got me a drum teacher. And that was the beginning. Did you come from a musical family? Uh, I did not come from a musical family at all. Uh, my mother was a bookkeeper and my father was in the jewelry business uh, as a salesman. Then, then what inspired you to, to pick up drums? Well, I, what inspired me to pick up the drums was basically, I felt I had this natural rhythm. I felt that I could really tap my foot along with the songs on the radio. And, um, you know, it's, it just worked out real good. Uh, did you instantly know that you wanted to pursue it as a as a career or some type of professional aspect? I never knew. I never knew that I wanted to pursue this as a career. Uh, I started with the band. We started making uh, good money with the band, and I all of a sudden I realized that that could be uh, that could be me making a living. So. Uh, you know, that was that was the beginning of of Jerry being a musician. Uh, what was the band name? Oh, the band the band's name was uh, Jerry and the Passengers. But we used to go to New York. We used to. I got a deal uh, from a, a music publisher to help back up a lot of bands, and we made one record, and we came out under King Arthur and the Knights. One record, the Johnny Green Combo. One record, Jerry and the Passengers. So we used to, in the old days, we could go in and cut a record and make a singles deal with a record label and put it out. And if we got a hit, which unfortunately we never had, uh, that, was, that would have been the name of the band. But um, what we did was just try to record as many songs and be on as many labels as we could now at this time did you were you still living in connecticut or did you make the move to new york city we we always went to new york 
and recorded all the records in New York at a professional recording studio. Uh, at what point did, did you decide to, to make the move to New York? Did you make the move with the band? I never, ever uh, moved to New York. I started doing uh, local radio promotion for a distributor uh, based in Hartford, but I lived in New Haven, so I would commute up to Hartford. And then when I went to work for Atlantic Records in 1967, I commuted from New Haven, Connecticut to New York during those early days and then moved closer to New York uh, to Greenwich. So tell me more about that that experience um, at Atlantic Records. How did you get your first job? What was your first job? Well, I joined Atlantic Records. I was very fortunate. I joined Atlantic Records as Jerry Wexler's assistant. Jerry Wexler was the executive vice president of Atlantic. He was the guy that produced Aretha Franklin and signed Led Zeppelin. And so I got my musical college education working for Jerry Wexler. And he taught me everything I needed to know on how to become a good record exec. And... um, it was an amazing, amazing experience. How did you meet Jerry? Um, I met Jerry Wexler because the guy who was doing promotion for Atlantic Records at that time, Henry Allen, kept on telling Jerry, there's this kid up in Harford that keeps picking these records and breaking these records. So, And he's got a really good, good ear. And Jerry Wexler called me and said to me, I just bought a record that I think will be a big hit. I'm going to send the dub up to you by messenger, and I want you to tell me what you think. And I got the record, and I said, I'm going to take it to, I was very close to a DJ at a radio station, and I brought the record to him, and I said, I think this is a smash. Put it on, the ra- put it on let's see what the reaction is. So I remember he played it at like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. The phones lit up. Then he played it again at 3 o'clock. And the local record store in New Haven called the radio station and said, what is that record that you're playing? It's uh, We're getting calls for it. And that record, and then that record turned out to be When a Man Loves a Woman by Percy Sledge. And so I called up Jerry and I said, Jerry, you're going to have the biggest crossover pop record that you've ever seen. And once that happened, Jerry Wexler and I bonded. Uh, Jerry Jerry came back once from recording Wilson Pickett in Muscle Shoals and sent up uh, a bunch of records, and I picked Mustang Sally as a as a next crossover big hit for Wilson Pickett. So that's how I met Jerry. That's how Jerry decided to bring me into Atlantic Records, and that was the beginning of of my career at at Atlantic working 
from the man who ran the company day to day, who was a record producer, who knew songs and watched him and learned from him. Let, let, let me make sure I get this correct. You broke When a Man Loves a Woman by Percy Sledge? Yes. I was the first guy in the country to hear that record, take it to a radio station, get it played, and yes, I broke When a Man Loves a Woman by Percy Sledge. Oh, wow. Uh, oh, okay. So so you're working with Mr. Wexler. Uh, what, what did you learn from him? What was your day-to-day duties when you got to Atlantic? My day-to-day duties at Atlantic was basically to call back people that Jerry Wexler couldn't call back, to look for songs. The first project he gave me was to find songs for the Dusty Springfield album, Dusty in Memphis. Uh, but remember, I was I was a promotion man, so I also would still call certain radio stations, and that's what Jerry was was like. I mean, Jerry would, you know, Jerry would get on the phone and and call disc jockeys around the country and really uh, help promote Atlantic Records artists. That was that was who Jerry was. What is it about your ear that allows you to recognize a, a hit song? Um, I'm not sure what it was about my ear that would re- that would I would be able to recognize a hit. However, I listened to a lot of radio. My band would uh, the band would would we backed up the Ronettes, we backed up Chuck Berry, we backed up the Drifters. So I got very familiar with during those days hit records. I this was a this was a great story, which is I went into Jerry Wexler and I said because Jerry would give me a lot of tapes and demos for me to hear. Uh, and I went into Jerry and I said, listen, I just heard this record. I think it's a smash. I'd like to, bu- I'd like to buy it. And he said, I trust you. Go ahead and do it. Cause he was very, very busy. My first signing to Atlantic records was Archie Bell and the drills tighten up. Not too many people would know that record. And whether you remember or not, he went into the army and he couldn't really support it at that time. But it ended up being a gold record. And and when that record went gold, I looked at myself in the mirror once and I said, oh, man, this is going to be easy. So tell me about some of the other acts that you were able to sign at Atlantic. Well, I think the thing that I was most fortunate is because I understood rock, pop, and R&B. I loved R&B. I mean, you know, it was uh, when we when my play my with my band. All we would do is is you know rhythm and blues song, Temptation song, a Drifter song, a Ronette song. Uh, uh, you know, that was the music that we grew up with, and the music that I I really loved. Did I understand rock? Absolutely. Did I understand Zeppelin? And and ACDC, absolutely. But um, I really loved 
R&B music. I would, I was, remember, I was Jerry Wexler's assistant. So when he was recording Aretha Franklin, I was the only guy allowed to go in the studio and watch him record Aretha. And I became very close to Aretha. I became very close to uh, Roberta Flack, to Donny Hathaway, to those artists, King Curtis, to those black artists that were on Atlantic during those days. They respected me. They knew that I had a good ear. They would ask me what I thought the single was. I mean, I, I uh, love Tommy Bell and Linda Creed who wrote all the songs for the spinners and of course the stylistics and, and all of those, those acts. But I had a hand in signing the spinners at hand and signing ACDC, but you know, acts that I personally, personally was responsible for was foreigner Genesis, Roxy music, a lot of dance music, I was personally signed Nile and Bernard to, with Sheik and Sister Sledge, and um, that really started their career. So um, that was just uh, a few off the top of my head. Uh, wait, tell, tell me how you discovered Sheik. Oh, I, I got it. It was interesting. I knew uh, one of the guys that was one of the uh, producers, the two guys that uh, were involved with Nile and Bernard at that time was a guy named Mark Kreiner, who was a dance promotion guy. And the, his partner was a guy named Tom Causey, who worked for Atlantic Records out of Pittsburgh. And they called me up and they said, listen, we found this record. Uh, we found this group, actually, that has this record called Dance, Dance, Dance. We think it's a hit. Can we come up and play it for you? I said, absolutely. So they came up. They played me Dance, Dance, Dance. And I, I got it right away. I said, that's a smash. And they said, I said, uh, let's do the deal. So they said, well, there's one problem. We did a deal uh, with, with a company, but the company was supposed to have the record out in time for the dance convention. The disco convention was, this was a Monday. Dance convention was a Friday. And they haven't, they don't have the money to press the record and they're not going to be able to get it out. Can you get the record out by Friday? So I called my lawyers down and they looked at the contract. They said they were free. I said, you got to get this deal done by, you know, before Friday. I said, give me the tapes. And now this is a Monday and I have to get this record out by Friday. Mm -hmm. But I arranged for the parts to be flown out to our plant in Philadelphia, press up a thousand records, bring it back to New York on Thursday and that's how we had the record out by uh, by wow. Friday. And, um, you know, thanks to, uh, you know, my tenacity in making sure that they got the contracts done and we got the record out, uh, that was a, a big, big record. 
The interesting thing that I found out probably about five years ago, because I still know Nile very well and hang with him, and he said to me, well, you know, the record was turned down by some people at Atlantic before it got to your desk. So I said, oh, my God. I didn't ask who turned it down or whatever, but um, it shows you that, you know, sometimes you got to get lucky and sometimes it has to, uh, sometimes people don't hear the same thing you hear. And, uh, you know, but that's what makes our business is so interesting. I also read that you, you also signed ABBA. ABBA was an interesting thing, uh, interesting situation because I got a call from Nesweird again that used to run uh, Atlantic Records. He was one of the partners in the beginning. And then he went on to run WIA Distribution internationally. And he called me and he said, I was just at the uh, Eurovision uh, contest and there's a group that won the contest named ABBA. And I think Columbia turned the record down for America. I want to send it to you and see what you think. And I'll give you all the information. So he gave it to my guy in England who who got it to me right away. As soon as I heard Waterloo, I fell in love with it. I knew it was a hit. And so uh, I got with the lawyer in New York and I signed the band. And uh, Abba, just in case you didn't know, is the biggest selling band in the world. Bigger than the Beatles. Worldwide, that was a phenomenon. And what happened is uh, I became very good friends with the manager, Stig Anderson, and we were the last, America was the last place for ABBA to break. And I got to tell you, you know, it was, we, we had a great company, a great promotion company. We always prided ourselves as being number one. And it was so frustrating to go to Canada and see them, you know, sell out. And, and, and he, Stig Anderson told me once, one out of every three homes in Australia owned an ABBA record. That's how big they were in Australia. So, um, you know, it was frustrating. I mean, we had we had some hits with them. Obviously, Waterloo was a, a, a hit in uh, um, Let the Games Begin. And, uh, and obviously, their biggest hit came when we had Dancing Queen. I mean, what happened with Dancing Queen was it really broke in the clubs. So now, all of a sudden, Abba's a club band with a hipness and credibility and went right up the charts to number one. So Dancing Queen was really the key to the success of Abba in America. What was the strategy behind bringing Abba to uh, an American audience? Well, the problem with ABBA 
was one of the girls didn't like to fly. They didn't really like to tour much. And I kept on saying to Stig, Stig, do a tour and I'll break them in America. And he said, give me a gold record and I'll think about doing a tour. So we used to laugh at each other. You know, we each had our own uh, uh, cop out, so to speak. But finally, they did a tour. It was only 13 dates. They they didn't do, a, a, you know, a whole big, big tour. But I got to tell you, uh, the difference, I'll, I'll never forget, I was with one of my guys from Atlantic, and we were at the uh, first opening concert of ABBA in Canada, and it was it was family crowd, if you know what I say. Mothers, daughters, husbands, wives, everything. And they're bringing roses and flowers. And my guy from Atlantic turned to me and goes, sure ain't like a Rolling Stones concert. <laughs> and uh, that, was, that was really uh, the truth. But uh, like I say, they came finally. They did their 13 dates. And... Um, the album broke and the next album was great. And of course, Mama Mia, when they ended up doing the, uh, the whole, uh, Mama Mia movie, uh, and that really was what took them over the top major, major. Now we kind of jumped, uh, right into your, your big signings, but how did you take over for Wexler and become president of Atlantic? Basically what happened is they sold the company around 1968, 69. And Jerry at that point uh, wanted to spend time in Florida. And so he bought a house in Florida. And all he really wanted to do was produce records. He didn't want to run the day-to-day Atlantic operation. Uh, By that time... Uh, 70, 71, I had already moved up from Jerry's assistant to the head of promotion. I was the VP of national promotion. Then I moved up. My next promotion was VP of A&R, the guy that had to sign, had the A&R department and sign artists. And by 72 or 73, Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I became the general manager because Wexler was in Florida. 
He would come up during the summer, but during the winter months, he would be recording all of his artists in Florida at Criteria. And Ahmed was somebody that never showed up in the office till four o'clock in the afternoon and spent a lot of time in California and a lot of time in London. So who was there to run the company? I guess I won by default. <laughs> and that's that's how I ended up taking over. Is it true that you were you were the youngest record, um, the youngest president uh, of, a, of a major record label um, at that time? Well, I, that's what they tell me. I mean, I, I never looked upon that as, uh, oh, I'm 32 years old and I'm the youngest president. I, it was never about that. I mean, I was doing the same thing as president that I was doing as general manager. Uh, you know what I mean? I mean, the title never meant anything to me. It was finding the artist, loving the music, coming to work every day, supporting my team. Remember, listen, that was the greatest team of people that you could ever imagine. If you go online and you look up Atlantic football movie and it's on YouTube, you will see the spirit of Atlantic records. We were like a football team. I loved football. And I, I even came up with this idea. You know, when I used to talk to the radio stations as, as a promotion guy, the first thing you would talk about with these guys is, hey, did you see the New York Giants this weekend? Or did, You know, you would talk football with them. So I never forgot that I used to talk to this guy in New Orleans. And we talked football. And then he said to me, you know, uh, we, it was WTIX in New Orleans. And he says, you know, we have a, a, a tag football game that we play. Why don't Atlantic Records put together a team and come down and play us? I said, you got a deal. So I got the guys from Atlantic that wanted to play touch football. We flew down to Texas, I mean, to, uh, to New Orleans. And we did this promotion, and it was great. The people in New Orleans loved it. The program director loved it. So I said, you know, this could turn out to be a great promotion. So we started uh, going around the country as the Atlantic Heavies football team playing radio stations. Great, great promotion. But the but what what happened is I'll never forget it. We end up going to Dallas to play the radio station Cliff in Dallas. And remember, I mean, my guys, we, I didn't have any professional football players or something. I mean, we were, accountant, we were an accountants. We had promotion people, we this and that. So we show up at the football field and, you know, the radio stations would announce that, that you know, Atlantic Heavies are coming to play the Cliff guys. And what I tried to do halftime was get an Atlantic act to play during halftime. That was another like great promotion. But anyways, so the school bus pulls up and the program director and the music director get off the bus. And then I see these guys. They got the guys from the Dallas Cowboys to play on their team. <laughs> I said, oh, my God. Hey, you know. The first play of the game, 
The first play of the game, one of the Dallas Cowboys, my center, was a guy named Dickie Klein. He's probably 5'8", and probably weighed, you know, 140 pounds. The first play of the game, he runs over the center. He's laid flat on the ground. And I said, hey, wait a minute, man. This is a tag football game, <laughs> you know. So one guy, one of my guys dislocated his shoulder. Another guy hurt his ankle. And when we got back, Ahmed Erdogan heard about it. And he said, okay, Greenberg, no more football. To span the football team. That's an order. <laughs> Obviously, you have a, a great connection with people. Uh, what made you a, a great president? Well, I, I'm not sure what made me a great president. I'm not sure. I, I mean, you know, uh, I think people said to me at 32 years old, how'd you become president? I said, I knew how to say yes and no. And I called everybody back. And I think when you read my book that I have coming out, you'll know that my mother taught me you're only as good as your name. And I had a lot of respect for people. And um, I think what made me a real good president was that I was, I, I could recognize trends and I loved the music. And it was not about going to work. It was about going to do something you really enjoyed doing that I was able, believe it or not, to share with my kids, to be able to share with my family, to be able to come home and, and talk about, you know, I mean, my kids uh, in my book uh, was just, I didn't realize how, much of an effect they loved picking up the telephone and talking to Mick Jagger or picking up the phone to Bette Midler or Aretha Franklin and all the those different artists that would call the house or they're going with me to the to a concert and and loving being on stage with the spinners and uh you know so um what made me a good president I'm trying to think, how's this for a word? Passion. I had a lot of passion mm. for artists and the music. I, I also read up uh, on you that you were president of MJJ Productions, Michael Jackson's uh, record label. Um, and on my podcast, I interview a lot of people who work with Michael Jackson. Uh, how did you end up becoming president of, of MJJ after your time in Atlantic? Um, later on in my career, uh, after I left Atlantic and, uh, I ended up at, with my own label at Sony music and uh, that was around 1988 and I had my own label and my lawyer friend called me up and said, listen, Michael Jackson is going to start his own label. And he heard about you and he, he wants you to, he wants to take a meeting. So I took the meeting and it was, he was just incredible. I mean, I instantly recognized a beautiful, wonderful, creative person with Michael Jackson. 
And my uh, Tommy Matola that ran Sony called me up. He said, I got good news and bad news. I said, okay, what's the bad news? He said, we're not really, uh, we, we're going to take your artists and put them on Columbia, but we don't want you running your own label anymore. Well, what's the good news? The good news is you're going to run Michael Jackson's label and you're going to be partners with him. I go, okay, uh, I'll, I'll take that. And that was the beginning, and that's how uh, I became uh, president of Michael Jackson's record label. Now, so many people have the image of Michael Jackson you know, as the entertainer, the dancer, um, as a very friendly, kind, a childlike person. But what was he like a- as a businessman? Michael Jackson is a very, very smart business person. I mean, he, he bought the publishing company that had the, uh, had the uh, Beatles catalog. And um, listen, did he overspend a lot? Create creative creativity, you know, on, on some of his videos and this and that. But he, he was a genius. And he was a, a, a very, very smart businessman. Because uh, uh, how was your relationship working-wise uh, w- with Michael? My relationship working-wise with Michael was fantastic. He trusted me. And um, the first project that we did together, which was really all my idea, and I put it together, was the Free Willy soundtrack. Uh, I was the guy that uh, got a call from the picture company saying they wanted a Michael Jackson song. He um, wanted to get involved with it, but he didn't have time to write a song or a new song. So I went into his album and found Will You Be There? And convinced the picture company to put that in as the theme for Free Willy. And Michael's, I think it was the seventh single out of Michael's album. And sure enough, it was a hit. And that was the beginning of MJJ because we put the soundtrack together for Free Willy. And that was something that Michael and I, that I did uh, with Michael's permission. For an artist like Michael Jackson, why was it important for him to have his own label instead of going through uh, his label Epic? Oh, Michael loved Epic. He loved Sony. And again, having MJJ, uh, one of the things he wanted to do was sign his nephews, 3T, which we, which are Tito's boys, which we signed. And we had a platinum record with, with uh, 3T. So he always wanted to be creative and discover talent. I, I remember the phone rang like at one in the morning at my house and I pick it up and Jerry and Michael goes, Jerry, did you see Sister Act 2? And I said, no. He said, there's a girl in that movie. I want you to get me in touch with her. I want to sign her. She's unbelievable. So I check it out. It was Lauren Hill. 
Yeah, I so I said, um, okay, l- let me let me do my homework. And Lauren Hill, I found out was in a group called the Fugees. I knew the manager, David Sonnenberg, and I called David Sonnenberg. I said, Michael Jackson wants to sign Lauren Hill. So he said, we have a new album coming out with the Fugees. I can tell you that if for some reason it doesn't make it, believe me, she'll sign immediately with Michael. Well, unfortunately or not, <laughs> or well, fortunately for the Fugees, I shouldn't say that. The record did happen, and Lauren Hill went on to become a big star. But Michael could recognize, you know, talent. He signed this young uh, guitar player called Nathan Cavalieri, who was like 12 years old, who B.B. King took him on the road with him. Because, I mean, a 12-year-old that can play the blues, the kid was like unbelievable. So um, Michael wanted to build a record company, wanted to be bigger than Motown, you know, and I think that's what he uh, what he wanted to do. I was the guy that found and signed Brownstone, which of course you know was a platinum act. I also found and signed Tatiana Ali. So we had a very successful run at Sony with MJJ, and Michael was very happy. But the biggest thing that I did with Michael was I had a, a guy come into my office who I knew and work with, and he said, I wrote a play, a screenplay called Sisterella. And basically, I guess you could tell, it's an urban spoof on Cinderella. And I spoke to Michael about it, and we ended up producing the play together. Jerry Greenberg and Michael Jackson produced Sisterella, it opened in, in Pasadena in 1996, and um, it was, to this day, still the highest grossing show at the Pasadena Playhouse. Wow. <laughs> um, I also want to know more about your relationship with Tommy Mottola. I heard that you introduced Tommy Mottola to Mariah Carey. That's, that's an interesting story. When we started my label, WTG, we had a signing party for a group called Eighth Wonder that had the lead singer was Patsy Kensick, who was a movie star. And I, when I had my label back at Atlantic, I had a girl named Brenda K. Starr, uh, dance artist, very, very talented girl. And I called all my artists from New York saying, I'm in town. I got a party. I'd love you to come. And I just happened to be in the hallway with about three or four other people. And Brenda comes in and he has she has this girl with her. And she said, I want you to meet my girlfriend. She's a great singer. And she wants you to hear her demo tape. She hands me the demo tape. Just at that moment, Tommy shows up. And he takes a look at Brenda and, and uh, Mariah. And he sees the tape in my hand. He goes, I'll take that tape. I'm the president of Sony Music. And he takes the tape out of my hand. So I don't pay much attention. I said, you know, I said hello. And about two days later, the phone rings in my office and the girl, my secretary comes in. Tommy wants Brenda's number. 
So I said, all right, give it to him. Then about two months later, I'm on the corporate plane with Tommy, and I go, whatever happened to that girl that uh, you took that tape out of my hand? And he said, I'm signing her to Columbia. I said, well, what about my label? He said, no, she's in New York. You're in California. Donnie Einer needs a new artist. I'm going to work with her. Vision of Love was on that tape. Wow. Does that feeling ever get old of seeing talent, you know, at a, 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 a infancy stage and seeing that artist blow up? Because Mariah Carey became one of the greatest singers of our generation. She's still one of the greatest singers of our generation. Does that feeling ever get old of seeing talent get big? All I can say is the feeling of watching artists grow and listening on the radio or, um, you know, I watched the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and like this this year, they I was involved in a signing with Stevie Nicks uh, and I also was involved in the signing Roxy Music. So watching these different artists two out of five artists going to Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, always makes me, puts a smile on my face uh, when I'm in the car and I hear a novice song or I hear a spinner song, uh, puts a smile on my face and knowing somehow that I had a hand in it, that I was responsible for it. Um, I got a very big kick out of watching the Norman Lear, Jimmy Fallon special that aired last week with All in the Family and the Jeffersons. And um, Norman Lear was a visionary in television. I think I was a visionary in music. Um, I signed, believe it or not, the comedy album All in the Family. I never watched the TV show, but I was in the Army Reserve and everybody was talking about this show called All in the Family. And one of my guys said, you know, I think it would make a great comedy album. And I called Norman Lear and I made a deal for for a comedy album. I mean, I I signed, I did the the deal for the Muppet soundtrack. Um, So I'm all over the place when I think about it. I mean, whether it be soundtracks, whether it be rock, whether it be pop, whether it be rap. I gave Atlantic their first rap record with J.J. Fadden and um, Miss Chalet. That was 1988. I signed it. I did the deal with Jerry Heller and Easy. Uh, I put Two Live Crew in a soundtrack in 1986. I saw the whole rap thing coming and the whole hip-hop thing coming. So am I a visionary in music? I think I am, but uh, that's up to the public. <laughs> you know, you've achieved uh, so much. Um, you know, you can just read your Wikipedia page and tell that, wow, you've you lived a full life. Uh, but what is your, your proudest moment uh, of your life and career? Well, my pride, I, I had a lot of pride moments. Uh, I think that my most memorable, memorable experience was being on stage with Led Zeppelin on their encore, Richard Cole, their roadie would go out and play congas on Whole Lot of Love. And I turned to him and I asked if I could do it and he threw me the sticks and I went out and I played congas 
and Madison Square Garden with Led Zeppelin. And then Bonzo grabbed me at the end of the song, and I ended up taking a bow at Madison Square Garden with Led Zeppelin. So I have to tell you that's a moment that I'll never forget and is embedded in my brain like nothing you could ever imagine. (laughs) Wow. Um, Jerry, I ask everyone the same question at the end of every episode of Silent Giants. Um, You know, we all are on a path to pursue greatness, but we never really understand what it takes to, the sacrifice it takes to become great. What have you sacrificed um, to achieve the things in life that you've achieved? I don't think I sacrificed anything. I think that I, uh, I think when you, again, I think when you read my book, you'll understand I was a great husband. I was a great father during those days. I was a great music lover. I was a great leader for Atlantic Records. Um, I had my hobby, which was sport fishing, and I caught every kind of fish you could imagine in, in, in the world. I mean, I went to Great Barrier Reef to try and catch a, a big marlin, and I did that. Uh, I think I, when Jerry Greenberg plays, he plays hard. Okay, that that that's I can tell you that whatever I take on, I take on hard. Whether it's breaking a new artist whether it's a hobby, whether, you know, people say to me, God, Jerry, you never sleep. I mean, and you return 100 phone calls a day. How do you do it? I don't know how I do it. I think I take after my mother. I think my mother was somebody, she worked three jobs and had a lot of spirit and taught me well. Uh, Same with my father. I think, you know, the family was always very important to me. I took very good care of my father when he got older and got sick and uh, couldn't take the winters up north, and I bought him a place in Florida. So um, I didn't sacrifice anything. I, I enjoyed every day of my life having music and artists around me. Wow. Well, Jerry, it is such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. You are um, an incredible human being who's achieved so much. Thank you so much for contributing to popular culture. And I'm so happy to have had the opportunity to to interview you. Thank you. You're very welcome, buddy. Take care. Thank you all so much for tuning in to another episode of Silent Giants and to our special guest, Jerry Greenberg. This episode was mixed by Mark Bird. Lastly, be sure to check out my other show, OPP. Other People's Podcast is the TRL of podcasting. Every week, I interview America's top podcasters to learn more about them and the dope shows they created. I have the link to OPP in the description of this episode. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Pod bless. Till next time.